My name is Chris Casey, and this is my story. Several years ago, I was faced with a situation that made me examine my relationship with God. As a result of becoming a single mother with three young children, I had begun to operate from a perspective of what if? What if I didn't have enough to provide for my children? What if they or I didn't emotionally survive the divorce? What if I couldn't be all that they needed? Because of my anxiety, I began to make plans to cover all of the what ifs. This involved purchasing a second car because what if my first one didn't start? And what if I couldn't go to work? And what if? At this point, I heard about a family at my church that was needing a car. I did not know this family, but they stated it was needed to get to work and to church. This struck deep. They did not have a car to get to work or to church, and because I was not trusting God to provide for us, I had two. So I offered my second car to the family. This should be the end of my story, but it is only the beginning. Very shortly after I had given them my car, they quit attending church. I felt used. More specifically, I felt like they owed it to me personally to continue to go to church. After all, this was the place that a stranger had showed them that they would be loved and supported and that God would also take care of their needs. At the time, I thought my intentions were pure, but obviously I had some unmet expectations of receiving something back from the gift I gave. I found that these expectations caused more stress than joy. They marred the act of giving. My gesture had become more like bartering. As I began to evaluate my response and to define what kind of giver God really wanted me to be, I realized that giving isn't always about helping someone else. It's about serving. I heard Dan speak one day about having an audience of one. This idea of operating only for God's eyes had a profound impact on my thinking and made me aware that I had yet another deep, ugly root that needed pruning. This root was named control. The process was painful, but with this became a, came a peacefulness that I had not known before. I leaned on the verses in Luke that tells us, Give to everyone who asks of you, and, whatever, and whoever takes away what is yours, do not demand it back. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great, and you will be sons of the Most High, for he himself is kind to ungrateful and evil men. Be merciful just as your Father is merciful. I cannot stand here and say that I have never had another what if, or that my audience of one is always pleased with my performance, but I can say that I have discovered that giving without expectations is a profound joy, and I don't have to wonder who benefited benefited most from the gift of a car. My name is Chris Casey, and this is my story. She took that a lot better than I would. We're going to start a series on the book of Acts. Um, uh, and in each of the next three weeks, I've got uh, strange passages that just come one right after another for us to crack open and crawl inside of. So uh, let us begin. Could we stand for the, the reading of God's word from Acts chapter 4? Beginning in verse 32. All the believers were of one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great favor was upon them all. 
There was no poverty among them because people who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money to the apostles to give to others in need. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi and came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles for those in need. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. I was 15 years old when I first became aware of this passage. Uh, we were at uh, our kitchen, and uh, a family guest was coming to visit, and he saw the Bible sitting out there, and he said, do you read that? I go, yeah. He goes, you ever read the book of Acts? I go, yeah. He goes, what do you think Jesus and the disciples brought us? And I said, salvation? He said, communism. <laughs> it is 1988. And there's one thing you did not want to be in 1988. That was a communist. So we're, here we are in Acts chapter 4. The church is just a few years old. It might just be a few months old. It, in all seriousness, it might just be a few weeks old. And people are selling their property, and they're laying the money at the apostles' feet, who turn around and give it to the needy in the church. The text says they eliminated poverty in that church in Jerusalem. There were no needy people among them. Now, we know from archaeology that only about 14% of people in the Roman Empire even owned a house or any land. The top 14% are the only ones that owned anything in the Roman Empire, so we can safely say it is the rich who are eliminating their possessions in this passage. They're giving it to their church leaders who meet the needs of the poor, and that eliminates poverty from among them. We have two words for this. It is wealth redistribution. Now, if I read the last election results correctly, folks in this community think that wealth redistribution is a bad idea. This is a red state and a red county. So I just have a, a really easy question. This morning, if you don't think wealth distribution is a good, redistribution is a good idea, if you're against communism or socialism or whatever it is you call it, are you still Christian? Before you call your real estate agent to liquidate your house, I know you're getting ready to do that, to bring the money up here. I have some other questions. Which is, if we're going to do that, if we're going to all liquidate our property, eliminate poverty among us, what are we going to do about all the graft and the cheating and the sham artists? Because I can promise you, if word gets out that this church liquidates property and spreads it all around, we're going to be inundated with rip-off artists. I wish that were a guess, but I know it from experience. Um, I, I work here through the week. I know you think I only work one day a week, but I, I come Monday through Thursday as well. And uh, every week someone walks in here looking for money. I wish this weren't true, but I'd say 85% of them tell me they're diabetic. Almost all of them tell me that they need the money to visit their mother in the hospital. And almost every single one of them, their mother is in the hospital in St. Louis or Joplin. Now, it's not my place to judge why there are so many diabetics with sick mothers four hours away in the hospital. James says, give freely to all without finding fault. And so, for anyone who has a story, no matter how identical it is to every story that ever gets told here, they get a gas card. It's not enough to get all the way to Joplin, but it'll get them to the next place. And I can't tell you how many times I've walked a person out to, to pray with them and give them a blessing. 
and they climb into a gleaming, fully loaded SUV. Nicer vehicle than I will ever own. That's the kind of stories that scare us. And I wish it wasn't true. We all heard about Hurricane Katrina victims who took their government relief money and bought large screen televisions. I don't know I wasn't there, but if that's true, that's scary. Oh, it's not just the poor who ripped people off. We all heard about big bank bailouts that took their bailout money and sent their employees on exotic end-of-the-year retreats and gave them huge bonuses and in some cases used the money to buy smaller banks that were failing. They claimed to be failing and then used our money to get bigger. Don't know if that was true. I wasn't there. But if that's what happened, that's scary. These stories are nothing new. I just read an account from the... Uh, second century, okay, that's the 100s A.D., that said in the Roman Empire there were charlatans who specifically targeted Christian communities to sponge off their generosity because Christians were so easy to con. That was written in the 100s. Even this Bible account is kind of messy. Uh, chapter 4 of Acts is beautiful. People sell their homes and fields and give to the poor. There's no needy among them. That's beautiful. Acts chapter 4. By Acts chapter 5, people are already lying about their giving. By Acts chapter 6, they're already crying, crying racism in the way the uh, uh, food is being distributed to the needy widows. Here's six more passages that occur in Scripture that you can look up where Paul is raising money for the church in Jerusalem from other churches in the Roman Empire, uh, Rome, Corinth, so forth. So evidently, they had no needy among them, didn't last very long, because for the rest of the New Testament, Paul is having to raise money for the church of Jerusalem that's falling on hard times. By 2 Corinthians, Paul, uh, yeah, Paul is having to argue what he means by this giving in the church. And in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, he says, Of course I don't mean your giving should make life easy for others and hard for yourselves. I only meant there should be some equality. Further signs of confusion. 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. Evidently they've got some scam artists now. He says, even while we were with you, we gave you this command. Those unwilling to work will not get to eat. Yet we hear that some of you are living idle lives, refusing to work and messing in other people's business. We command such people and urge them in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and work to earn their own living. So I guess I'll... Ask my question in the opposite direction now. If you are for wealth redistribution and you are for communism or socialism or whatever it is you call it, can you actually see a way that it would work in the real world? These are really hard questions. These are some central questions for the Christian faith. And uh, you don't have to buy my interpretation this morning, but I do want to give the very best understanding that I can give this pastor and after studying this passage, and that's what I'm going to give you right now, the very best answer that I can give. And it starts here. I don't think Jesus and the first Christians were communists. Communism is a system enforced by law. It's now been tried in all the major cultures on the planet. It's been tried in every hemisphere of the globe. And every time it failed to eliminate poverty. There was always a privileged elite who managed to operate above the law, not participate. And everywhere it's been tried, there have always been large numbers of poor 
as George Orwell wrote in The Animal Farm, all animals are created equal, but some are more equal than others. The church of an Acts took part in these acts voluntarily. It wasn't even a condition of participating in the church. In the very next chapter, Peter tells a rich couple plainly, you didn't have to give us this land or this money if you didn't want to. We'll see more about that next week. In all of Paul's letters where he talks about money, and he does often because he's constantly raising funds for uh, churches in trouble, even in 1 Timothy where he specifically says, Timothy, tell the rich Christians to do this and gives them a half a chapter worth of um, instructions. Mandatory liquidating of their assets and pooling it together is never mentioned again in the New Testament outside of this passage here. These are six amazing verses that we can learn a lot from this morning, but we can't stretch them into saying that mandatory distribution of assets or communism was, was part of what was being taught here. I also, after studying uh, this and other scriptures, don't believe they were selling the houses they lived in and then all sleeping on the temple steps together. I believe they were selling other properties that they owned or managed. There are a lot of churches in the New Testament that meet in people's homes for all the rest of the Bible, including the rest of the book of Acts. Priscilla and Aquila were two church leaders that are thanked twice in the New Testament this way. Thank Priscilla and Aquila and the church that meets in their home. And there are several other Christians who are thanked one at, only once in the New Testament for the church that meets in their home. And now maybe my most controversial statement this morning is I don't think wealth redistribution works anywhere in the world. I don't think any nation can pull it off. And I don't think it would work in the church either. The reason why we don't liquidate the church this building and all these assets and give it to the homeless. And people ask why we don't do that a lot. I get asked that a lot. I actually can't say the reason why we don't because I can't speak for all the elders, but I know why I never vote for that is because in my honest heart, I believe that if we did that, it would generate millions of dollars and we gave it to the homeless. I believe that half of it within the first week would fall into the hands of scam and ripoff artists. If they didn't swindle us directly, they would swindle the poor that we gave it to. Immediately, I think within a week, half of it would be taken. I've just spent a last month trying to buy a used car. I've now been swindled by every race, every creed, every age category, and every economic bracket. It's unbelievable what's out there waiting for you. All right, so here's the other thing. Of the half of the actual homeless people that received the money that we gave, in my honest heart, I believe within 12 months they would all be back in exactly the same situation. Because giving people money does not change a heart and it does not impart wisdom. I believe the church eliminates poverty by proclaiming the kingdom. And not only with talk, but with our actions. So here's our big vision moment. How we live shows the world what the kingdom of Jesus is going to be. That's what we're supposed to do, in case you missed it. When whatever, however much of the world can see Lakeland, sees Lakeland, they're supposed to go, okay, so this is what Jesus is going to bring. This is a snapshot of what eternity, according to Jesus, will be like, people living like this. And then they're supposed to see it and go, okay, 
I'll live in that. I'll sign up for that. I'll follow this Jesus based on what I've seen. And inside the church, poverty is eliminated. Not lack of money. We can't give you a permanent hookup. But poverty, not having what you need to survive and thrive, is eliminated inside the church. And the world cannot come to the church and say, well, just give me the good parts. I'll take the charity. I'll take your free meals and blankets. But you can keep your work ethic and morality and all that. I don't want that. The world can't come to the church and say, I'll take your Habitat for Humanity house. That looks cool. But you can keep all your calls for wisdom and that part about that I will have to be generous to someone else someday. I'll take your compassion, um, but as far as showing compassion for others, I'll, I'll pass on that. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't work that way. Only in the church is poverty eliminated. And scam artists who hear that say, bummer. I didn't want to be part of it. But you have to join the church. Because charity only works alongside accountability. The blessings of God only flow from the rule of God. There is charity, and it does have its place, but it's only for those who embrace holiness. Giving up their slavery to sin, answering God's call to be generous to others. Verse 32 in our passage today says, All the believers were of one heart and mind, and they felt that what they owned was not their own. They shared everything they had. John Wesley preached on this in the 1700s. He said, Their loves, their hopes, their passions joined. So the consultant that we work with here at the church to help us with fundraising and financial challenges tells us that this is a giving congregation, a very giving congregation. I know we say this all the time, but we're, we're very proud of it, and we're just going to keep thanking you if, you'll, if you can stand it anymore. Um, by proportion, Lakelanders give more than thousands of other churches he has worked with. Maybe not in dollars, because there's richer communities you could live in than this one, but uh, by proportion, per person, you give more than thousands of other churches he has worked with. You support the ministries of this church. You also support orphans in Haiti. You also support struggling communities in Mexico. You also uh, support, in a big way, the persecuted church in China. You uh, support the medical and educational needs of women and children in Africa. You uh, support forgotten teens right here in our own community. So I've been pastoring here now going on seven years. That snuck up quick. And twice since I've been here, I've seen women who were suddenly abandoned by their husbands. And twice, I've seen little groups of you pool together thousands of dollars, earmarked for those women until they could get back on their feet. And this didn't have to happen, but this is what happened. Twice, I have seen both of those women draw very little or nothing from those accounts and instead pass them on to the next person in need. They didn't have to do that, but that's the way it happened. Somebody in this congregation was sending my family $100 grocery cards while we were in seminary. I don't know who you were. You did it two or three times a year for three years, but they always came at just the right time. We always thanked God. 
At Lakeland, we give out our relationships with accountability. We know the friends in the persecuted church of China that we're giving to by name. They are Jack and Hannah and John and Anna and Summer. They're Chinese, so those probably aren't their real names, but we know the names they've given us. Maybe we don't know as much as we think. We should reevaluate. All right. I think their other names are unpronounceable, but we know them, and, the name, and there's more than that. Uh, we know our friends in the Hope Center by name. We know our friends in Annapra, Stella and Luis and, and others. We know Pastor Moise in Haiti. And, and we know Kylie and Andy Ewing, the founders of, of Prodeo, the youth center. And they're sitting right there. We know Kathy, Kathy Gutierrez of Dignity Liberia. She's original Lakeland Community Church material. Veronica's voice that helps women leave the sex, leave the sex trade. Members of Lakeland are on the board of directors. It's harder to scam the church because it's harder to scam family. Can it be done? Sure. Has Lakeland been scammed before? Oh, yes. And some of you have been taken for a ride by people in the church. They pretended to be in need. You gave to them, you know, and they said, we're going to Disney World. But I would say that has been the exception and not the rule. And I would say to those of you who have, who have had that happen, you did the right thing still. You obeyed the scriptures that say, give freely to all without finding fault. Now, as for what they did, that is between them and God. And I hope they repent and make that right soon because they weren't just messing with you. They were messing with the integrity of the church. And as we'll see in the chapter next week, that's very serious business. Um, I pray they come around and make that right. You want to see a world without poverty? Spread the church. Evangelize your guts out. That's the opposite of what a lot of folks are saying right now. But when everyone's in a spiritual community of accountability, when everyone can be in a church that does what a church should do, it will eliminate poverty. Not lack of money, but it will eliminate poverty. Not having what you need to survive and thrive. If you want to see a world without poverty, it starts in the strangest places. It starts with your boss. It starts with your neighbor. It starts with your coworker, your brother-in-law, who you have over to your house for dinner, and when the opportunity arises, you tell what Jesus Christ has done in your life. And you invite them to church. When we got something going on here, you think that would speak to them. And even if they're not in need now, they become part of a community. Maybe someday they'll help someone else, or, you know, all of us have times come we weren't expecting but they're here when the times come to them and this is what changes the world in fact the deeper you are in community the more radical the generosity can be and the more completely the poverty can be eliminated so if you just attend Lakeland if you just come you sit down you leave no, no one knows you or speaks to you uh, even for you at that level of community, there's a certain level of, you know, if you have a, a light bill you can't pay, a gas bill, something happens, you can bring it in. And if you, if you come here, someone from our benevolence committee will look at that, and up to a certain amount, there's some help that can be given. On the other hand, at a level deeper, if you're involved here, if you took one of those serving tours, you got on a serving team, people know you, they know your story... You've, had, you've seen this happen. You fall on hard times. Somebody knows. 
and they give Liz, the pastoral assistant, a little envelope with your name on it and some cash inside. She passes it on as an anonymous gift. And a lot of you have given those envelopes and you've received those envelopes. For those of you in a small group, small group, big investment, big investment. If you're going to go laugh with someone, cry with someone, pray with someone, study with someone twice a month every, or one night a week, you're really known there. All those stories are told about pooling the thousands for the, the abandoned moms or paying each other's tuition or, or passing each other used cars. That all happened inside small groups. The most relationship, the most accountability, the most charity, the least poverty for those at the center of community and small groups. Sometimes people get very, very angry with me because they have a friend in, in church. They go here and they lose their job. And I will not stand up here and launch an all-church fundraiser for them. And I will not do a pancake breakfast to pay their bills. And that, that upsets Folks, I know you've been upset with me. Um, and I say, let their small group care for them. Because if their small group doesn't want to bail them out, then there's usually a, a good reason why. They know something the rest of us don't. And if they're not in a small group, which is often the case, and they haven't submitted themselves to the accountability of the church enough to be asking for that level of assistance. We can do something, but there's limits when there's limits of relationship. And those are limits they placed on themselves by deciding I'll be this much into the church, but not that much. Well, then there's also a not that much that goes with the gifts and the charity. Generosity in the church is efficient, it is accountable, and it is powerful. And it lets us all be the people we want to be, as giving as we want to be. Uh, it cuts down on the fear and the embarrassment of being scammed. Could we do more as a church? Absolutely, and I think we will. Uh, today, we're reading about a man nicknamed Barnabas, verse 36. For instance, there was Joseph, the one the apostles nicknamed Barnabas, which means son of encouragement. He was from the tribe of Levi. He came from the island of Cyprus. He sold a field he owned and brought the money to the apostles for those in need. And now we've heard his story. And we'll all go home and we'll think about the field we own, the lake house we own, the family farm, the rental properties. And we'll think about the encouraging example of a guy nicknamed Encouragement. And we all know that as one financial challenge is winding down, we all know another financial challenge will start very soon. And in that financial challenge, there's going to be charity. There's still a place for charity. They just won't end poverty. But there's also going to be in that challenge a lot about spreading the church in this community and around the world. Because only in those churches, those spiritual communities, is there generosity with accountability needed to end poverty. And so now we've all heard about Barnabas and what he did. And so we'll all pray about what we have and we'll hear from God. And we'll pray that God will make us fearless to do whatever the Holy Spirit leads us to do when the time comes. 
And the next question someone may ask is, uh, what will we do as a church to make sure people are as generous as they're supposed to be? What will we do to make sure people pray, hear from God, and sell whatever it is they're supposed to sell to eliminate need in our midst? What will we do as pastor? What will I do as pastor to make sure everyone does what they're supposed to do? Nothing. Nothing. It's all voluntary. It all comes from our joy. It all comes from our gratitude. It all comes as our response to what God's done for us. It can't come from guilt, and it can't come from uh, fully participating membership requirements. Those things are powerless. So we tell the story of God and his people, and we've told it, and you've heard it. And all the rest that happens is the beautiful work and timing of the Holy Spirit in view. Here's my favorite verse from the passage this morning, verse 33. The apostles gave powerful witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and God's great favor was upon them all. And Every chapter, Acts always comes back to say they proclaimed the power of the resurrection. They spread the good news of Jesus and his resurrection. In fact, your generosity is ultimately just an expression of your belief in the resurrection. Because without the resurrection, the really sane thing to do would be, you don't know what's coming, flood, famine, war, disease, economic collapse, or thievery. So the best thing you could do without the resurrection is just store up a huge pile of money so you're immune to as much of it as you can be immune to. But with the hope of the resurrection, it's different. You say, I know how this ends, no matter how badly it goes along the way. Christ returns. I am raised from the dead in a new and immortal body, and I reign with him, and I receive the kingdom of God. So what am I afraid of? Here, I can give because I don't have fear of what may come and what the day brings because I know what the last day brings. When you give within the church or outside the church, you're proclaiming your belief in the resurrection. Other people, again, look at the church and say, they must believe something's coming with all their heart to do what they're doing. I want to live without fear like that. I'll join that kingdom. But you are right to scale your generosity to the size of accountability and relationship that exists. So here in the church, you know people the best. The accountability is the greatest. Your gift can be a certain size. With our brothers and sisters in China, we see them less, but we see them a lot. So there's still some accountability there. So there's a, we do quite a bit of generosity there. For the homeless person, that you see on the street corner, like was mentioned in the opening song. That person might be needy. That person might have a nicer car than you parked around the corner. There's no way to know. So for that level of relationship and accountability, a few dollars and a prayer that they could find a church to be in and have their need truly eliminated is an appropriate gift for that level of relationship. The bottom line of, of the church is that we're a people awaiting God's return. We're generous because he was generous, but not because we see ourselves as a soup kitchen. We are not primarily a soup kitchen. That's not the first thing that we are. Everything we do flows from God's grace and his gifts to us. 
But we are primarily a Christ-worshiping, truth-sharing, life-changing community. That's the first thing we are, a Christ-worshiping, truth-sharing, life-changing community. We spread the good news of Jesus everywhere, and we spread his church everywhere, and that becomes our act of evangelism and charity all in one. So Christians aren't communists, but we are radical givers. And wisdom says that giving happens best in the church where there is mutual love and accountability. I know you will have questions about that. So rather than do meet the pastor today, I said, I'll just be right over here. And anybody who has questions or, now wait a minute, what were you saying? You can just come right over here and I'll be happy to talk about those until our congregational update starts. Our congregational update will start here in a few minutes. Um, and we're going to tackle the question, is this a friendly church? That should be a lively discussion. So, is this a friendly church? So come back. Uh, we'll, we'll ring the bell right before we're getting ready to start. It should just last about 15 or 20 minutes. And, um, and that'll be that. In either case, do get your children so whoever's taking care of them now can get on to what they're going to be getting on to. Would you stand and let us recite the Apostles' Creed together, the foundation of all we believe and proclaim. I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who is conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. On the third day, he rose again. He ascended into heaven. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, one holy church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sin, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. Go forth in peace and in your hope of the resurrection.